I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here anymore. I'm on a wave. I'm on a mountain. I'm on a roller coaster sailing across the sky. And the only trouble is in wondering why. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. We try to discuss almost everything under the sun so we can kind of flesh it out and see what's going on. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Three announcements tonight. We have an online store to serve some of your material needs in a very limited way. Check it out at www.hotm.tv. Additionally, we teach the Word of God uh, verse by verse twice every Sunday. You can join us through live streaming 10 and 2.30 by going to campuschurch.tv. Additionally, we archive all the sermons on that site. And uh, you can go through verse by verse Matthew presently, John, the Gospel of John, uh, Romans, Hebrews, James, and currently, you can go through with us live as we are going through Acts. We just started that, and First Peter. Uh, Seth has done a fantastic job in in both sites, hotm.tv and uh, at uh, campuschurch.tv. So check those things out and the information provided. Third, Dr. Don Preston, as we've been talking about, will be here to teach and talk. And to answer, we've been talking through email about what he's going to cover, and he's going to be uh, uh, covering some great stuff, and then open it up to questions. That's Friday, September 11th, Saturday morning, September 12th. Tell your friends, bring your pastor, bring your pastor, challenge yourself to see things differently. Uh, I think it's worth it whether you, whether you agree with it or not. That's almost irrelevant, but challenge yourself to see things differently. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. For the people who come to uh, church here uh, in Milk on the Sunday mornings, th this is going to be redundant, but... There's a passage that is just kind of stuck with me, and I think it's important. Uh, I never really considered it. It's in Acts chapter 2. Luke, who is the writer of Acts, uh, has been describing who was present at the day of Pentecost. And this is what he says, Acts chapter 2, verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Okay? So that's a simple enough verse, isn't it? Especially the first three phrases. There was dwelling, living, staying at Jerusalem, devout men. We get that. They were all there. Why? Because that was the, one of the uh, uh, holidays that they had to be in Jerusalem for. And, but the phrase that we've got to kind of think about is when he says, out of every nation under heaven. Okay? So... That last lines up for some debate, isn't it? When you read that there were devout men living in Jerusalem who came out from every nation under heaven, how do you interpret that? Now, Bible literists will say it means every nation that was under heaven, there were Jews who were present there. Or they might say, it, wherever a Jew was living in a nation, they would have been attending uh, Pentecost at that time. Um, 
some Bible literalists will refute that interpretation and like, kind of like they will say every single animal that has ever lived was on Noah's Ark and, uh, and they would say that truly what it says there, it means out of every nation under heaven. Okay. Let me read to you a couple different translations. The TCNT says, Now there were then staying in Jerusalem religious Jews from every country in the world. That's how the TCNT translated that passage. Pretty much the same thing. Of course, the King James Onlyus will say, Out of every nation under heaven there were Jews present there at Pentecost. We know that male Jews, according to the law, were commanded to come to Jerusalem once a year for the high holidays. So I think we could reasonably say that any nation under heaven that was home to a Jew had a representative there. Would you agree with that? Any nation under heaven that had a Jew living in it was represented at Pentecost. I would agree with that. The Bible says that. I, I think that's a reasonable way to see it. But here's the thing that struck the note with me. Joseph Smith taught in his Book of Mormon that out of Jerusalem came a family, Lehi, his sons, and their wives, and they were Jews. They were Jews, and all through the Book of Mormon it talks about the Jews and how they came out, okay? And that was about 600 B.C. By the time Jesus was on earth, according to Smith's book, they had grown into a giant nation, split and divided in different ways. So the question that you want to bring up when we read that for our LDS friends is one I've never considered before. Are there or were there Jews in America? And if so, they would have to have been present at Pentecost because they were a nation under heaven. Do you understand that? And it's a great sticking point when talking with the LDS. What you say is, let me ask you, what do you trust more? Joseph's uh, story of Jews getting on a boat and going over to the Americas and turning into a giant nation, or Luke saying that every nation that had Jews under heaven had representatives at Pentecost. And if you agree with Luke, then you're trying to tell me that somehow Jews came from America, came back to Jerusalem, and were there at Pentecost. If that seems unreasonable to you, then you're going to have to make a decision where your uh, allegiances lie. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, forgive us on the things that are not properly presented and the things that are mistaken. Help me to speak clearly in faith and love and support of all you are, all you've given us, uh, especially your son. And we just pray that the Holy Spirit will guide us as we talk. In Jesus' name, amen. This last week, we sort of listed the views leaders had about the Bible up until around 500 AD. If you, don't, you weren't with us last week, go back and watch that show. The reason we covered this is to show that the idea that this beautiful gift we, of the Bible that we have access today was not completely set for the first part of the Christian era. And we showed that last week that up for the first 500 years, it wasn't truly set up to that point. Why is this important? It's to help prove that sola scriptura is a misnomer and that our view, our view of the place and purpose of the Bible, again, our view of it, not the Bible itself or its contents because they're wonderful, but our view and use of the Bible has in many ways been an error in the way we have seen it and the way we have used it and needs to change in order for believers to not only appeal to the book in the spirit that it was intended, but to allow the contents of the book to stop dividing people uh, over doctrinal differences. In my opinion, this will occur when we appeal to the Bible properly when we step back and we stop saying the rhetoric that we have assigned to it and just try to continue to look at it, all right? So there's a few things we have to remember. First, it is the spirit that gives life. The letter kills. Paul made that clear. The letter will kill. So when we look to letters, if we apply letters, they kill. The spirit gives life. The letters help us understand what, how the spirit is moving us, but the letters applied will kill.
Second, we do not worship the Bible. It has no form of it. We worship God, who is love. And as worshipers of God, seek to love. If our use of the Bible is leading us to actions and attitudes of non-love, listen, again, if our attitude is leading to non-love that we are taken from the Bible, we are misusing it. We are not embracing it in the spirit that it is given. And we've misinterpreted its purpose. I suppose I'm suggesting that we see the Bible and our use of it as Christians, like a medical doctor would see his medical books. It might be a bad uh, parallel, but try, hear me out. His medical books are filled with wonderful and insightful information. Yes, they assist in the diagnosis of sick people. And yes, they give great insight regarding treatment and the history of what doctors have done for years and what happened. But doctors still have to walk into an examination room and they still have to engage with sick people. And there's much, much more to being a doctor than just the medical book. That medical book is to help him, but he needs to use it in association with living, breathing, feeling people who all approach doctors differently. Sola Scriptura in the face of Christian love has an ability to create Christians who do not see the need for a bedside manner. They don't see the need for, to cautiously approach children of God who don't understand him yet. To cautiously, and like a doctor would come into a terrified child and sit down and get to know them first before applying what is in that book to help heal them, you see? As a result, many evangelicals, evangelicals, evangelicals uh, are very similar to the ancient Jews when Christ came, straining at gnats and swallowing camels whole, truly. And I have been guilty of that myself uh, in former days, and even still today, I do that sometimes. So it's not that I'm saying, oh, you, 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 you. I'm, all these fingers are pointing right back. I am just as guilty, if not more. But I'm trying to re improve on that and say we should change. Third, I think it's really important to stop romancing the Bible with superlatives of inerrancy and infallibility when those terms are always and only assigned by scholars. Listen, when people say the Bible is inerrant and infallible, it is always and only assigned by scholars to the original manuscripts. When scholars say the Bible is inerrant, they are talking about the original manuscripts. And let me tell you something, we don't have any of them. We don't have one. And so if we don't have the original manuscripts, why do we insist on referring to the book where it's taken from unoriginal manuscripts and saying it's inerrant and infallible? What that does, there's nothing wrong with honoring the contents of the book and seeking to understand by the Spirit. Believe me, we try that. But the problem is, is when we hold this, this up, this modern version, and we say, it is inerrant, and it is infallible, and every single word in this is absolutely correct, we set our children up and other believers who seek for failure because they will be proven and given evidence that that's not true. That's what happened when I was LDS. I was told the Book of Mormon is the most correct book. Joseph Smith was a good guy. Brigham Young did good things. They have been glorious prophets. And then when you grow up and you start seeking, you find out the cracks and the deceptions. You say, I'm not believing that anymore. Jesus is way too important for us to do that to people where we get them to believe in him and we say this is his perfect word and then when people can show it's not, it's a problem. Now understand, the imperfections are, are negligible and they really are insignificant. But there are things that are not actually, we don't agree with what has be, been written. So let's jump ahead. We, we, from 400 AD, that's when Jerome gave us the Latin Vulgate, which the church controlled from 400 AD all the way out to 1500. So 1100 years, God allowed the Catholic Church to take that pretty much, it's in Latin, 
It wasn't in Greek, it wasn't in English, it wasn't in German, it was in Latin. Not many people spoke Latin. Gave that power to the priests who could read Latin to preach in Latin, and that's what we had for 1,100 years. Well, in 1380, an Oxford professor, trained professor named Wycliffe, he was an outspoken critic of the established church he took the Latin Vulgate, which they said, this is the holy book. He took it, and with the help of his followers, which were known as Lollards, they helped him. He produced dozens of English language manuscript copies of the Latin scriptures. Okay, that's 1380. Because the Vulgate were the only sources available to him, he had to translate it from the Latin translation. The Pope was so furious with him for doing this, that 44 years after Wycliffe died, he ordered his bones to be dug up, crushed, and scattered over a river. They were so mad at the fact that Wycliffe had the audacity to say, wait a second, I want to see what this Latin translation really means. Uh, was Wycliffe's Bible what we use today? If we had Wycliffe's Bible here in front of us and we read it, would, or, and his translation, is it what we have right now? It's not. First of all, it was written in Middle English, and that is very, very tough. To, you can get about every fourth or fifth word from it. Secondly, it included all of the Deuterocanonical books. Those are books that were extra to the Old Testament. And it included the Antilegomen uh, books, which are all the books in the New Testament that were suspect as to whether they were right. And then, it included everything against the Catholic Church. It included venomous tirades against clerical abuses. It included anti-Catholic views. It included uh, all kinds of stuff included in the Bible. It included anger against their sacraments of their penance and uh, Eucharist, their use of relics, and the demands on clerical celibacy, all included in his Bible. So we have the very first English translated passages from the Latin Vulgate into Wycliffe's Bible, but it's not the Bible we have now, okay? So when you say Sola Scriptura, what are we talking about? In 1414 to 1418, a Catholic council took Wycliffe and a guy named John Hunt, Huss, and they put his Bibles around their feet and lit them on fire and killed them. That's how angry what Wycliffe did uh, made them. In 1450, you've heard that a guy named Gutenberg he invents the printing press, and the first book to be printed was the Latin Vulgate, printed in Germany, okay? So now the printing press is in action, and the first book is the Latin Vulgate. Nevertheless, the invention of the movable type printing press meant that Bibles and books could suddenly be replicated, and that was foundational to the Reformation that was coming right around the corner. And God knew what he was doing with this, okay? Then in 1490s, another Oxford professor like Wycliffe, who was the personal physician of King Henry VII and VIII, his name was Thomas Lineker, or Lineker. He said, I'm going to learn Greek. I want to know what the Greek says about the Bible, and I'm not going to just look at the Latin. Okay? So, Lineker, it's 1490. The original manuscripts were written by 100 A.D., we said, and now it's 1490, so we have 1,390 years before anybody has gone and challenged the Vulgate and looked at what the Greek manuscript said. That's how long. And what happened to believers during those 1,300, almost 1,400 plus years? Did what they have, though it was disagreed upon, and it was translated badly, did it suffice them in the hands of the priests who spoke Latin? I would say it did suffice, because this is part of the point. Sola Scriptura draws a line in the sand that was irrelevant prior to 1390. There was, there was no relevancy to that. I, I, you can't show me historically where we had Greek translated manuscripts being read in the churches by the believers. They had the Latin Vulgate being passed on by priests. God allowed it to be this way, we have to remember. Anyway, after reading the Gospels in Greek, comparing it to the Latin Vulgate, listen to what Lineker wrote. He said, either this, the original Greek, 
is not the gospel or we are not Christians, end quote. That is how different Lineker translated the Greek translated manuscripts to what the Latin Vulgate was saying. He said, look at either this original Greek language is not the gospel or uh, we're not Christians. That's a radical statement for somebody to make. I can't, I can't hardly believe it. Lineker shows that the Bible that had been taught and used for a thousand plus years was in serious error in light of the Greek manuscripts that he was consulting. Apparently, the Latin had become so corrupt, it didn't even preserve the essentials of the gospel of good news, and the church still was threatening that if you mess with this, we will kill you. So let's put a little timeline perspective on this. A year or two after Lineker wrote this, in 1492, Columbus discovered America. So this is where we're at in the whole scheme of things, right? Hearing the discoveries of Lineker, a scholar of enormous capacity steps up. Now this guy, of all the reformers, this guy really is interesting. And I admire much about him, and then I question much about him. His name? Erasmus. Erasmus steps up. I'm not going to go into how he got his name, but he was born in 1460 in Holland. He received high education in a series of monastic and semi-monastic schools. At the age of nine, he and his older brother were sent to the best teaching Latin schools in the world. In the Netherlands, he learned Latin, and then in a daring step, the principal of that school said, listen, we're not going to wait for you kids to go to university to learn Greek. We're going to teach you Greek here. When he was that young, he starts learning Greek. So he's being taught Latin and he's being taught Greek. And it is said that during this time, Erasmus obtained a personal relationship with God. Changed. And he obtained, he was ordained to the priesthood when he was 25, but he never really lived as a priest due to problems of religious abuses that he saw around him. He is considered by people today as a humanist because he was an expert in the humanities that were all around, and he studied the humanities. It is believed, due to some discovered letters, and he wrote a lot of letters, the letters that were discovered, that he was in love with a man named Servetus Rogerus. And Rogerus rebuffed his approaches to him. Many evangelicals today resist this and say, that's the gay agenda to try to take one of the founders of our Bible and make him a homosexual. That is not true. I'm going to read excerpts from these letters. You tell me. All right? The letters are so long, I'm just going to give you what the summary of the letter is, and then I'll give you a quote. The first letter theme is all about, from Erasmus, what a shame it was that Rogerius, that, he that they couldn't see each other anymore, and that at least they could exchange letters. And Erasmus asked Rogerus directly, do you love me? In a direct quote from this letter, Erasmus said, if it were possible, I should have wished you might care for me as I do for you and that you might feel the pangs of love for me as sharply as I am constantly racked by my yearning for you, end quote. The second letter can be summarized as, I can see that you're upset, Rogerius. Why won't you tell me about it? A quote from that letter is, It is my very special love for you, sweetest Servetus. Indeed, I suspect that you have not yet become persuaded by my supreme love for you. End quote. The third letter is all about, You said you'd write. Why haven't you? You should write. A quote from it says, For every person who is at leisure, is caught up in love's longings, love being the sickness of an unoccupied soul, end quote. The fourth letter can be summarized by Erasmus asking, why do you refuse to return my love or even tell me of your feelings? And a quote, consider that my deep affection for you is and always has been so deep, dearest Servetus. And the fifth letter can be summarized as I'm deathly despondent over your refusal to talk to me. The sixth letter is all about thanks for your letter. I'm so happy. Apparently, Rogerius wrote back, please don't coy anymore. A quote from it says, I beg you earnestly, oh, half my soul, 
by the extraordinary love I bear for you, not to cast me down again into the pit of sorrows, end quote. The seventh letter is, sorry I haven't written, letter with a line, farewell and continue in your love for me. The way people excuse these expressions in the church today as not being homosexual is to say that we don't understand the way men related to each other back in the day. We understand how men related to each other back in the day. We have letters from men back in the day who don't say things like, I am constantly racked by my yearnings for you in them. Okay? So let's just take and be honest about this stuff. As difficult and painful as it might be, let's be honest about it so we can have it out there and discuss it. Erasmus, uh, they would say as an excuse, the evangelicals was practicing his writing style. I've read that one. Or declarations of love between men were frequent in that culture and do not indicate homosexual intent. Admittedly, we don't know. We didn't have Erasmus say we are homosexuals or whatever. But I think this matters only in relation to how we tend to want to frame the character of those who translated the Bible and put it together for us in a way that, that kind of transcends what everyday human life is like. And, we, and by doing that, we make an us versus them, and it allows us to live in a fantasy land that people were perfect and that therefore we need to be perfect and anybody who's not perfect is not allowed to be in the, in the church with us. Anyway, due to his skill in Latin, he was granted a special dispensation by the Pope Leo X to set his religious vows aside and to pursue the humanities. In 1499, while in England, Erasmus was particularly impressed by the Bible teachings of one John Colette, who pursued a style more akin to the early church fathers than the scholastics because he studied and appealed to the Greek. Erasmus, his early Greek training is starting to say, this Greek is intriguing to me. He was promoted to the master of the Greek language and it enabled him to study theology in a very profound level and to prepare a new edition of the Jerome's Latin Bible. On one occasion, he wrote to Colette and said, I cannot tell you, dear Colette, how I hurry on with all sails set to holy literature. How I dislike everything that keeps me back or retards me, end quote. So Erasmus was a, became a driven man. He preferred to live a life as an independent scholar. He was, made a conscious effort to avoid being trapped into different positions that would keep him from being independent and trying to translate correctly. And throughout his life, he was offered all these things, but he wanted the rewards of independent literary activity. From 1506 to 1509, he was in Italy. 1506, he graduated with a Doctor of Divinity at the Turin University, and he spent much of his time as a proofreader in the Greek and ancient languages. He was soon exposed to a great deal of criticism for, by the academics and aesthetics and clerics who were hostile to him as being a humanist and his uh, approach to the Renaissance and all this other stuff. And he felt called upon to use his learning to purify the doctrine. So we are left with a question. Did Erasmus purify the doctrine or did he adulterate and pollute the doctrine? That's the question we have to ask. I think he purified it. I think he had purely scholarly intent, and that was his, his drive to get to Holy Written, make sure that it made some clear sense looking at the older manuscripts. So he tried to free the methods of scholarship from rigidity and formalism based off tradition, and he said, let's look at what it actually says, and he didn't stop there. His revolt against certain forms of Christian monasticism and scholasticism was not based on doubts about the truth of doctrine, nor from hostility to the church organization himself. He remained a Catholic his entire life, faithful to the Catholic Church. Instead, he saw himself as a preacher of righteousness by an appeal to reason, frankly, and without fear of the guys above him bringing down punishment. He was always intended to remain a faithful Catholic, which he did. Aloof from all entangling obligations, Erasmus was at the center of the literary movement at that time, and he was corresponding to over 500 men of letters during his life to talk about everything that was going on with this documentation. So there's some background on the man, ways, and life of Erasmus. Now, the first New Testament printed in Greek 
It was called the uh, Complutician Polyglot. Complutician came from a university. Polyglot came from a number of, it came from a Bible that had a bunch of different versions laid next to each other. The Latin, the Greek, uh, uh, whatever it was. And so it, this word got out that the Complutician Polyglot was going to hit the shelves, so to speak. Well, Erasmus got wind of this. He had been working on a translation of uh, the Vulgate and a new translation from the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And he heard the polyglot is going to make it to the shelves first. So he got working. And this is what he says about his Greek translation. Quote, But one thing the facts cry out, and it can be clear, as they say, even to a blind man, that often through the translator's clumsiness or inattention, the Greek has been wrongly rendered. Often the true and genuine reading has been corrupted by ignorant scribes, which, have, which we see happen every day, or altered by scribes who are half taught and half asleep. That was the guy who had access to writing these. So Erasmus sought to synchronize the truths that he saw in the uh, Latin Vulgate, Vulgate and the truths that he found in the Greek manuscripts. And so he starts synchronizing and seeing what is really valid in each uh, translation. And he goes through and he starts in modern, he was making them compatible, really. And he would, uh, for instance, the last six verses of Revelation were not in his Greek manuscripts. And so he added them from the Vulgate to Revelation. And he translated the Latin text into Greek whenever he found that the Greek text and the accompanying commentaries were mixed up. And, and, and he, would, he would side with the Latin's translation if it was more correct than the Greek and fix the Greek. And if the Greek's translation was more correct, he would fix the Latin. And so he used both of those sources to kind of come together and produce his New Testament manuscript. His first edition, Erasmus says, he rushed into print rather than into editing. And so it contained a number of his own scribal errors. And after comparing that writings, uh, what writings he could find, excuse me, Erasmus wrote corrections between the lines and sent them off to his publisher. And uh, Erasmus became the first published author of the Greek New Testament as a result of all this. He used several Greek manuscript sources because he didn't have access to a single complete set. He took them from wherever he could get them. Most of the manuscripts were uh, late Greek manuscripts, and he was fearful of certain manuscripts. The second 1519 edition was used by Martin Luther in his German translation of the Bible, which too was written for people who could not understand Latin. Luther took Erasmus' stuff, and he translated from what Erasmus says into the first German Bible. Together, the first and second editions sold 3,300 copies. The Complutician Polyglot sold 600 to show you the popularity difference from Erasmus being first on the block to get his uh, uh, translation out. And as we mentioned last week, first and second editions of Erasmus, 1 John 5, 7, 8, did not have the comma Johannine. And what that is, this is what, it, this is what these verses say. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Do you know what that is? That's called definitional Trinitarianism. Erasmus did not put that in his translation in the first two editions. Not there. Why? Because it wasn't in the Vulgate. And it wasn't in the Greek manuscripts. And there was no bringing them together. And he says it doesn't exist. Somehow those were inserted somewhere along the line. Erasmus said, I haven't been able to find these verses in any Greek manuscript. And then, of course, as we said last week, one was supplied to him eventually. And it was found, discovered that it was probably by somebody who was a, a Catholic proponent of the Vulgate who wanted that Trinitarian verse that really seals it seals the deal left in the in the manuscripts and so Erasmus included it and listen in June of 1927 the Catholic Church came out 
and they decreed comma Johannium as open to dispute. They said, okay, all right, that passage is disputed. We can wonder about it. It's rarely included in modern scholarship today and modern uh, literal translations. It's in mine still, but it's rarely included there. And that is the most definitive statement to support the Trinity in the entire Bible. Erasmus, third edition, 1522, Tyndale used to create his English New Testament, English New Testament, he used Erasmus. And uh, Erasmus published the fourth edition, and it contained the parallel columns of the Vulgate Greek and the Latin texts that Erasmus had translated. So now we have almost a polyglot there that Erasmus created. And the 1835 edition, fifth edition, uh, he dropped the Vulgate from it, the column. Later versions of the Greek New Testament by others based on Erasmus' Greek New Testament became known as the Textus Receptus. That's how we got the text for the King James Bible. That is where it came from. That source, that whole thing gave us that. Erasmus dedicated his work to Pope Leo X. What did you notice about everything I just said? According to Erasmus, what did you note about the condition of the Vulgate when he got it? What did you notice about his insights into the condition of the Greek manuscripts that they, as they were being translated? What did you notice about that from the mouth of those people who were working with those manuscripts? What did you notice about the person of Erasmus? Did you notice the fact that it was his work that contributed greatly to the, to the King James edition of the Bible of 1611? Did you notice who did that? What did you notice about the Johannine comma, which is the single most declarative statement on the Trinity in the scripture in the New Testament? Is it part of the inspired word? Was it added? Listen closely. This is painful stuff. This is not to demean the Bible. I love this book. And I teach it and I read, spend my life reading it. It's not to demean it. The point is to help us see it for what it is, which will help us use it properly and apply it properly in our relationship to other people. We've romanticized it. We've created false history about it. We have refused to see that there's trouble with certain parts of it, not parts that question who Jesus is, not parts that question uh, 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 grace and faith and his blood and the cross, not parts that are important, but these parts that are thrown in there and are suspect should be questioned and should be looked at or else we're going to lose the battle uh, by being so dogmatic. His word is true. It is a gift, but it's not exhaustive. And what we have is not without error in marginal ways. And to build mountains out of molehills using it, especially to beat each other up with it, is incongruent with its history and its development. When we read the Bible with the spirit of love, it changes lives, it renews the mind. But like a medical journal, it must be used appropriately. We do not worship it. We let the contents guide us to love, not to treat others badly. I don't care who those others are, how vile others are. We cannot let the Bible justify anger, mean, hatred, unsavory principles against the spirit of love. And that's what we're talking about here. Finally, these things about the Bible in no way justify any idiot coming up with their own book to make it, to make it right. Uh, the Urantia, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Bagna Gavita, any of these other books, sorry, the Koran, any of these other books to clarify what this book says are not needed. This book clarifies for itself what is needed. It gives us what we need. And it, and it teaches us through its comprehensive nature of the subjects that it talks about, it teaches us what we need to know. So it doesn't justify Smith, who was Joseph Smith, who was probably aware of many of these difficulties when he said, look, I'm not gonna trust that thing. Yeah, that's, not the, that's not the approach. I'm gonna create my own book. That's not the approach. 
but the approach is for us to be reasonable about what it contains, where it came from, and how to use it. It is the single most remarkable book on the face of the earth and a direct gift from God, but like all things, it must be used properly and simply and not as a means to manipulate, control, and hurt others. With that, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. While you're checking that, while the operators are checking your calls, please check this out. Because Christian laws are written on the hearts of believers. And believers are independently under the influence of God through the Holy Spirit. And because all beliefs are, in the end, between God and the individual, Christianity is entirely subjective, which leaves believers with the freedom to share Jesus and to love. All right. Thanks, Cassidy, for that. That was a beautiful representation of what we're trying to get across. Um, I will read this after. This is from England. This is a second one uh, from Virginia in Roanoke. No, from Cheryl in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, Sean, since you said you have a preterist view, do you believe Satan has been destroyed? I have been chatting on Facebook with Don Preston. He says that Satan no longer exists. I can see how the Bible was written to the people at that time, but so many unexplainable things, evil things, and not just what people do, keep me from believing that Satan no longer exists. I am a member of the LDS Church for 10 years, but we're resigning with a letter. I know this is deep, and I'm not sure you believe this. Thoughts, please. Uh, I don't believe that he has been destroyed, no. Uh, but I think that he has completely lost his power. Uh, and what I mean by that is he had the power to take captive souls. Jesus came and set the captives free. And so he has no longer the power to take hold and keep in, in, uh, in um, Sheol souls that were disobedient to God. Satan, I believe, continues to have the reign to tempt and try and test. Now, Don Preston is far more knowledgeable than me, and if he can prove that uh, incorrect, I will correct that quickly by Scripture. But my understanding of it is that when Jesus, Jesus, when he walked the earth, he said, Satan's been bound. And he said it in the present tense. This was before he even went to the cross. He said that in John. So I believe that Satan, by virtue of Jesus' victory, has lost his ability to do anything that will last forever and ever and ever. And I don't believe Satan has done, can do anything to hold people in hell or uh, the lake of fire will he'll be cast into. But I do believe that God, for whatever purposes, is allowing him still to roam free and to test and try and tempt people. Uh, before we go to the next email, let's go to Frank in Tucson, Arizona. Frank, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. I uh, have a quick question. A couple of minutes ago, you were talking about how that, that verse made it into the Bible and how it's now kind of in question by uh, the the Catholics. Um, yeah. What, what, are you trying to, what are you trying to say about the Trinity? Oh, I'm not a Trinitarian, uh, Frank. And so uh, I, I believe there's one God, and I believe that uh, the Father and Jesus were certainly uh, God, and, um, but I don't believe in the Trinitarian, I don't believe in creedal Trinitarianism. Okay. Uh, in, in kind of layman's terms, can you, can you define that? Real quick for me. Well, there's a few things about it. First of all, I don't believe the old, I don't, it's not that I don't believe, the Old Testament never identifies a father-son relationship existing uh, as two separate, distinct person, spirit persons, pre-creation period. Uh, we have God, that's what we have, or we have spirit of God, but we do not have father and son going on in the Old Testament. My opinion is that when Jesus took on flesh, the Word of God took on flesh, he, there became a father-son relationship at that time. Creedal Trinitarianism teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
are three separate individual persons as you, Frank, and me, and Kathy Maggie sitting in the cage here. Three separate. And so I don't believe uh, that uh, in the sense of how the uh, Trinitarians put that up. The second part I have difficulty with in the Trinity is when they say the Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, I believe that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. More correctly, I think the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And I think that it is the breath of God. I don't believe that it's a third person that has a separate personality that with the Son and Father make up one God. So I realize that those views are not uh, held by very many Christians, evangelical Christians, uh, and I could be wrong. Uh, and I accept Trini Trinitarians as my brother and sister completely. My whole thing is I don't think we know, and I want the liberty to have my opinion on it, uh, even if it goes against what men created in, in uh, Nicaea. Does that help? Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it does help. Um, and it really has me questioning kind of what my own beliefs are, which is a good thing. Yeah. And uh, it just kind of opens up a whole another level of me having to kind of deep or search a little deeper into what what man has really done to affect what what people believe now yeah you know what I, I take my hat off I wish I was wearing a hat by the way with this but I take my hat off to you Frank because I'm gonna tell you something Jesus said the father seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth and the people who rest back on their laurels or in fear say, I'm not going to question. I don't see the, those people being people who seek him in spirit and truth. Just your willingness to examine it is a healthy thing. Whether you conclude that the Trinity is absolutely viable for you in your estimation is irrelevant, really. It's the fact that you're willing to seek him with your whole heart and mind and soul and to try to understand. And I really believe that that needs to open up within the evangelical community uh, and the people who decide that they can label you as a heretic, as a non-Christian, as fallen because you voice these things, they need to learn a lesson about holding the tongue, loving, and uh, not letting this book beat people up. Mm -hmm. Keep going, my brother. Let me ask you this, this other question, Sean. Where, where, can I, where can I find information myself outside of what I love what you're doing but how can I start doing that kind of research on my own you know uh, here, here's the problem I honestly came to question it when I was just reading the word and I would read things and I would say let me check the Greek on this and it and it didn't make sense so then I would just go like there's oneness Pentecostals and Oneness Pentecostals, they take things a little bit more extreme than I would, but they essentially have come to the same conclusion. And so you can read some of their stuff. And then there's gonna be people who counter what they say and you can read some of their stuff. So you might start there. Uh, there's a lot of people actually who, who don't necessarily buy into creedal Trinitarianism, but they really don't know they don't buy into it. it when you explain how you see it, they go, well, I believe that. And you say, well, then you're not a Trinitarian. And you gotta, and so you just study and read the word, open your heart to God, try to pray to keep the, 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 the fallacy out, and be willing to be wrong. And check out things that, that uh, like start with the Oneness Pentecostals and see what authors they have and people who challenge their authors. That's what I did. Okay. All right, Sean. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Oh, God bless you, Frank. See you later. Take care. Okay, we're going to take a few uh, more emails, and then we're going to wrap up an early show, I think. Uh, next one. Is it more humane? I haven't read these. Uh, Kathy Maggie just gave them to me. Is it more humane to allow seriously and terminally ill LDS members to retain their beliefs than for them to know the truth over LDS deception? Ooh, this is tough. Does it really matter if an LDS prophet is prepared to knowingly mislead people out of their money, family bonding, and possibly eternal truths for corporate gain? Cannot the unwitting victims still be redeemed for their love of Christ? Or does the distortion go so far off the mark it's impossible to still teach the truth? The mic goes on and asks this question. So the question really is, 
we have a situation where there's a faithful LDS person, they're terminally ill, they're dying, and uh, do you spend the time to try to correct all their doctrinal uh, uh, LDS doctrines and try to uh, share with them whatever? I don't think I would try to correct LDS doctrines with somebody who is dying of terminal illness, but I do think I would seriously share Jesus with them, and I would, I would not even touch the LDS stuff, but I would say, you know, uh, do you know Jesus? Have you been born again? Uh, do, you, do you love him from your heart? Do you, have you confessed him with your mouth? I would just talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and see where they stand relative to him. Because in the end, Mike, what we can do is we could take oneness Pentecostals and put them in the same bed. And we can take uh, uh, Orthodox Presbyterians and put them in the same bed. And we can take a Calvinist and an Arminius and a Reconciliationist. We can put them all in the beds dying of terminal illness. And we can stand there and try to correct their misgivings on doctrine. Or we can say, you know, I know you've lived a very religious life and I'm sure this is irrelevant because you know what's redundant in me asking, but do you love the Lord? Are you ready to go see him? You know, what does he mean to you in your life? Things like that. And then having said that, if you don't say a word, if you're not led to that, you're just there to hold their hand and help them uh, transition out of this life. God is victorious. It's not up to you to save anybody. Jesus did it. So we go by the Spirit. The Spirit is love. And as people are, are dying, you know, I don't think that's really the, the, the time and place to freak them out over everything that they've wasted their time on. Because we could all do that to each other forever and ever. Bring Jesus in. Let him speak. Let him talk. Spirit will do the converting. I'm going to wrap it up with that. We've only got like eight minutes left. We'll cut it short tonight. We're giving our staff a break tonight, early vacation. And uh, we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't become. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel 